Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. David Gurr with Tom Keen in an increasingly crowded Bloomberg 1130 studio. This is wonderful. In the same studio are two of the great experts on American housing. Robert Schiller of Yale University gets his dose of hate mail. Peter Wallison does as well, formerly with President Reagan. A lot of people criticize him for the book Hidden in Plain Sight, which speaks about lousy government policy getting to housing. The key insight is LBJ. We all owned a certain amount of houses. Then we had a policy prescription of 40 or 45 years. That blew up. And am I right? We're back to the time of LBJ? We are back to where we were uh, before the 1990s with about 64% home ownership rate in the United States. Are renters bad people? <laughs> of course not. It makes a lot of sense to be a renter very often. How, how is uh, What's your sense of what this administration's housing policy uh, is? We had Dr. Ben Carson, Secretary Ben Carson, in here uh, Who uh, I might week. point out was wonderful. He was, he was very candid very about, gracious the, about and, the comedy in Washington. And very, and very candid about what, what he intends uh, to do. But I, I will say I don't think that we got a, a fully formed vision for what he has of, of, the, of, of HUD. Uh, do you have a sense of what housing policy is going to be like under this no, administration? No, I think they're still in the process of developing this yeah. policy. Um, there are lots of opportunities for them. There's some, there are Senate groups that are trying to get together. The House has a very uh, clear policy, and that is to get the government out of the housing finance system. Um, I and some colleagues have been talking to people in the administration about other ways that this thing can be approached. Mm -hmm. But really the answer is, and there's only one answer, and that is if we want to have a stable housing system with affordable housing, we have to get the government out okay. of the business of the of uh, controlling this housing market. And Bob Schiller's squirming over there. I mean, Wallace wants to get everybody in the government out. I'm yeah. sorry, housing policies made in the long corridor of the Willard Hotel. Bob, if we can't get to Wallace's nirvana, what's the proper mix of government and private enterprise that makes the Case-Shiller Index go? Well, I think that uh, the government regulations often serve a purpose. So uh, the Dodd-Frank Act put in a, a responsibility for qualified mortgages of the lender to appreciate, to uh, look at the uh, affordability uh, for the homeowners in terms of mortgage payments. Uh, also, they created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is uh, doing something I don't think Peter would <laughs> always disagree with on. <laughs> That they're 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 looking they're looking at bad business practices. They've 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 field complaints from people who feel they were tricked or misleaded, uh, and and so we have some. Uh, the unregulated market has some strengths and it also has weaknesses. And the United States, in our history, have always had some regulations. Or we had you could sue 
uh, and complain about how you were treated. That goes back right to the beginning. But it's better to have some kind of uh, ombudsman like, uh, or some people who are really looking at the practices and uh, sometimes lay down the law. Paint a picture for the listeners here. We've got about six feet between Peter Wallace and uh, Robert <laughs> Schiller and a bunch of monitor- monitors between them. But Peter, w- w- what, is, uh, what is your impression of the, the CFPB's role here? There's been so much uh, complaining about it and its structure and, and all of that. Do you agree with Professor Schiller that it does serve uh, an important purpose? Look, there ought to be certainly some regulation of how mortgages are made and to be sure that the, the people who buy homes are able to afford them, things like that. The CFPB's rules are terrible. Uh, for example, they suggest that um, there's a limit of 43% on uh, the <clears throat> debt-to-income ratio for a person who has a mortgage. That means that you can borrow up to 43% of your income. But if you sell the home to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or to FHA, it's unlimited. You can go over 50%. Mm -hmm. And so we are creating a whole lot of people in the United States who are buying homes with huge mortgages, way over what they can afford. And eventually, when we reach the top of the bubble and the bubble falls, these people will all default. Um, So we've got to stop getting the government involved in this. If the private sector were making these loans, they would be stable prime loans, and we'd have a stable market. I want to come back and broaden this out to what Bob Schiller's written about, which is our financial system and also um, the the idea of a good society. Peter Wallison with us. I just got an email from Barry in Connecticut. Barry's got a backyard. You know, it's like the state of Delaware. The backyard is so big in, in Connecticut. Barry sends in an email. We'll talk to you. A broader discussion about the banking system, AIG, as well. And Robert Schiller with us of Yale University uh, will continue this discussion. Perfectly timed for the 10th anniversary of our financial crisis. All of that coming up in about eight weeks. With Peter Wallison, with Robert Schiller, this is Bloomberg. Peter, let me go to you first. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some movement on the issue of regulation. Uh, in Washington, of course, the House of Representatives passed the Financial Choice Act, a bill that was drafted by and championed by Jeb Hensarling, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. The expectation is it's not going to go very far uh, in the Senate. We got the first iteration of a Treasury Department report on regulation from the Treasury Secretary, this one focusing on banks, but some 147 pages in length. It's a serious, thick report on what this administration could do when it comes to regulation. Where is change going to happen from? Where is it going to come from if indeed we do see change to regulation in Washington? How much faith are you putting in the the legislature at this point to, to do anything? I think at this point, unfortunately, we have to assume that there's not going to be very much important legislation. The Democrats in the Senate, as we all know, are voting against everything that might change Uh, Dodd-Frank in any way that might change any kind of policy that the Trump administration is for. So we have to realize, and as long as we have a filibuster rule in the Senate, the Democrats are going to be able to prevent anything from happening. So the changes in regulation are going to come from the personnel that the Trump administration appoints to various uh, offices in in the government. And I believe that most of the Most of the optimism now that we are seeing in the business community comes from the fact that uh, they believe that there will be an end to the reign of regulation that they had under Obama. And uh, that's very important. 
but it, unfortunately, it is not a long-term solution. The people in office now during the Trump administration may be less interested in regulation, but um, there will be a different president in four or eight years, a different administration, and uh, they may return to the regulatory process. So we really should get rid of all of this terrible regulation if we can. And up to now, it doesn't look as though the uh, the Choice Act, which was the House's mm-hmm. version of the repeal of most of the major uh, seriously uh, troubling provisions in the Dodd-Frank Act, um, it doesn't look as though that's going to go very far <clears throat> in the Senate right now. Robert Schiller, how do you begin to assess the efficacy of, of the Dodd-Frank Act, of all the regulation that was put into place after the, the financial uh, crisis? Now, with hindsight, we can sort of look at, at what's worked and what what hasn't. Well, how actually, do you go about that process? Yeah. Actually, you, we don't have hindsight yet because we haven't had a financial crisis ah. again. So there's a lot of uh, things that were created in Dodd-Frank to deal with the next crisis, yes. and we haven't seen it yet. Uh, things have been kind of frozen. So as Peter was saying, we still have Fannie and Freddie government agencies supporting much of the housing market. That doesn't look like a stable long... I agree with Peter. That's not a stable long-run thing. But uh, we're kind of slow to change. Now, Donald Trump has the problem that during the election, he made some rather striking extreme proposals, uh, like end Obamacare (laughs) or delete Dodd-Frank. Uh, but uh, when you actually look at doing that in its entirety, it's not going to be politically popular, and so it's not not no. going to happen. And we've got that this morning with the health care uh, bill from Mr. McConnell that we may see. Peter Walton, Barry from Connecticut, emails in. I know Barry's got a backyard bigger than the size of Delaware. He's a typical homeowner. And he says... The criticism of Wallace is it's just about housing. Do you link in other financial events and financial events leverage, such as the AIG blow-up or the SEC allowing the banks to leverage up? They've got to be part of this debacle, too. Yeah, I, I don't think that there is um, a reason to solely look at housing here. But you have to understand, I think anyone has to understand, that the market was developed the way it did with a huge housing bubble because of the credit availability that only the government would supply. Uh, a private sector... If Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac hadn't done that, Citigroup and J.P. Morgan... Of course not. Enough? Why would they? No one would want to make investments Because in... they could have hedged off the risk. The, to the derivatives crew saying, you know, think of the big short and derivatives and all that, to pick a beast, J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo could have done the Fannie Mae equivalent and hedged off the risk. I don't know how many people would want to take on that risk, but if they did, they would have to pay for it. The government does not have to pay for it in the same way. At least we don't recognize that the government is paying for it. And as a result, these very risky mortgages would be acquired by the government. And as long Mm. as that was going to happen, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo and others will make those mortgages and sell them to the government. We're going to come back with Peter Wallace. And Bob Schiller, i got one more question here. 21,410 on the Dow. You have been a very cautious bull to be polite about it. How exuberance is our exuberance? This morning, uh, I I've said things recently that were quoted as bullish. I was just trying to be reasonable and balanced. Uh, the U.S. has about the highest price stock market in the world, and that is a reason for alarm. Maybe not alarm for concern, but I still think that having some U.S. stocks in one's portfolio mm-hmm. makes sense. 
interest rates are very low, uh, you know, there's a there's a risk to the long term bond market as well if interest rates start going if, if up. We, have we, in the time we've got left quickly here, have we forgotten what a bear market is? How, how long does it take for us to forget what a bear market uh, is? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, forgetting is an important pro human process. <laughs> it takes place, uh, at, I would say, over the, you know, we're starting to forget the, the financial crisis. Uh, we remember it pretty well. I think that narratives of old crises stay with us, okay. unless, uh, unless they're reinforced. No. We live stronger in a Great Depression narrative yeah. than we do a... Did you see, David, he got narratives in six yes. times That's today. Right. That's his <laughs> That's new right. book. No, He's working right on it right now. Bob Schiller of Yale University. <laughs> Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith. Incorporated. David, I want you to bring in our, our guest because I tear up. He's with NYU Stern School of Business, which is one of my two charter advertisers. Aha. They believed in Tom Keene when well, people still don't, but uh -huh. it was it was a long time ago. To I'm going to I'm going to pass you the box of tissues here. Something in there. He is, uh, as you said, global professor of management and strategy at the Stern School uh, at NYU. Author of a great piece in the newest issue of the Harvard Business Review. Uh, that's the globalization in the age of Trump. He joins us on our phone lines. As I said, it's a it's a great piece uh, in the Harvard Business Review. A line stood out to me: uh, Executives believe the world is a lot more globalized than it actually. Uh, is you dug into this in in, in great detail uh, we've been told for such a long time that the, the world is uh, in fact flat right and uh, uh, that's still according to the results of the six country several thousand manager survey i did still overwhelmingly the preponderant view but on the other hand uh, you just kind of have to look around uh, to realize that the notion of a world in which borders or distances don't matter is, uh, well, we uh, shall we say, slightly optimistic in terms of where we are right now. Pankaj, how have we seen uh, companies adjust to the election of President Trump, the new rhetoric that we've heard that could be characterized as more uh, protectionist, the worry about what's going to happen to globalization, if it's going to disappear or change? How have companies adjusted? Well, I think obviously uh, Trump's election was a signal event, but that said, uh, companies were starting to sense a more protectionistic climate uh, well before Trump's election or even Brexit. So I remember Jeff Immelt uh, coming to NYU Stern to do the MBA commencement address in May 2016. And his whole point was the world has tur turned more protectionistic, and therefore GE is going to localize. <clears throat> so that's a fairly early but uh, very yeah. influential example of how some companies 
are trying to change their strategies. Your article is spectacular, including painful paragraphs on Nazi Germany and a nascent globalization uh, before World War II. Is the globalization now different from what we studied even six years ago? Is the, is the globalization now, Professor, different from Stiglitz? There's a small school in northern Manhattan called Columbia. Is, is the globalization different than Stiglitz discontent? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Joe certainly had his uh, finger on the pulse in some sense when he wrote that book. I think the title actually came from Amartya Sen. Mm. But uh, be that as it may, I think that what we're seeing right now, for whatever reason, is uh, the kind of anger that some of us had frankly been expecting a while ago around uh, distributional outcomes, etc., and uh, globalization is certainly in a way more fragile place than when Joe Stiglitz wrote his book in terms of our not being yeah. certain uh, about which way it's going to head. Did you see, David Gurra, how he got that Harvard Indian skewer in there on Stiglitz? He was very subtle about that. You know, it's very cool how the professor got that in there uh, on discontent. uh, Great titles are worth a lot, as uh, World is Flat book suggests. And uh, uh, based on uh, what I'd heard about it, uh, uh, Amartya's uh, been um, not skeptical about globalization, but let's just say has uh, longstanding impressions of its limitations. We say good morning to Professor Sen and Professor Stiglitz as well. David? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Fakish, let me ask you uh, about uh, GE in particular. Of course, GE has been in the news as we heard of uh, uh, Jeff Immelt's exit here uh, over these last couple of weeks. That's going to happen fairly soon. He'll remain on the board for for a little while uh, longer. But in your piece, you profile GE in particular. How has uh, Jeff Immelt reacted to, to globalization? Why is it such an interesting case study for you? Well, uh, I think a couple of reasons. Uh, One is uh, that Jeff was very prescient uh, when he came to Stern at Sensing before Brexit, because I think a lot of uh, business leaders were oblivious to what the downside risks were in terms of where the world economy might head. So, uh, you know, now it's kind of a commonplace that, you know, globalization is dead or on life support or some other similar exaggeration. But uh, uh, Jeff sensed this, and uh, the part of it, uh, so on that, on that count, uh, I thought uh, uh, he was very perceptive uh, as to the notion of uh, GE dealing with the whole change in the environment by localizing that's the one that i expressed some reservations about just in terms of how well suited uh, that kind of pure approach is to a company like ge what is globaloni it's like baloney is it edible no olives. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah uh, it is. Unfortunately, and the more of the more of it you eat, uh, you know, the greater the health hazards. Uh, <laughs> as some of our surveys document. So, global only, which is a great phrase uh, due to Claire Booth Luce, uh is basically the idea that there's a persistent tendency, and one could go into a bunch of reasons, to overstate how globalized the world actually is. And so when I recently ran a survey of managers in six countries asking them questions like, you know, what percentage of GDP is accounted for by trade? Yeah. Uh, 
what percentage of calling minutes are international, things like that. Uh, basically, they overstated by about a factor of five. Yeah. And uh, that's a rather large gap, that, or a rather large overshoot. It certainly doesn't fit with some of, you know, the folk wisdom about the wisdom of crowds, etc., and suggest that there's some systematic biases in terms of how we perceive levels of globalization. Well, that particularly at a time of anger about globalization are not very helpful at easing yeah. some of the tensions and apprehensions. Are, are, are we done with GATT? Are we done with Uruguay? Are we done with World Trade Organization as a multilateral mm. uh, world? Is that global only going forward? Well, um, no. I mean, I think that, or I certainly hope uh, that we're not entirely done with the multilateral trading apparatus because uh, I think, and more importantly, uh, uh, many other more knowledgeable people think that that's been the driver of some of the extraordinary gains in trade that we've seen since the Kennedy round back in 1963. So by globaloni, I uh, simply mean a tendency to overstate how globalized we are, and in the context of international organizations, I would suggest something more like the following scenario. <clears throat> Lots of people worried about world government, etc., you, know, you know, the black helicopters and so forth. Uh, useful to remind ourselves that the total amount of employees of international governmental organizations is 0.1% of the total employment of governments around the world. Yeah. Well, let's, come, let's come back. This is too, This is very, very valuable. Panja Kamawa with us with New York uh, University Stern School of Business with an incredible, incredible effort in a Harvard Business Review. It takes to cover the truth about globalization. It's really, if, if you're engaged in the world economy, it is truly a must read from Harvard Business Review, The Truth About Globalization. And we will continue this discussion. I know David Gurr has got a whole bunch of tangents he wants to take as well. Okay, why don't you bring in uh, this great article that we're using as a foundation to talk about people's huge fears about globalization. Why don't you bring in Yeah, that? and I'll put that link out on Twitter because. as well. Globalization in the Age of Trump. That's in the Harvard Business Review's July and August issue. Pankaj Jimwad joins us now. He's a global professor of management and strategy at the Stern School of Business. Let me ask you how much globalization is determined by the United States. I've been struck by the rhetoric uh, since the NATO summit in Brussels, since the United States elected to pull out of the, the Paris Climate Agreement. There's a, a sense among policymakers in Washington uh, that uh, the U.S. will always have a seat at the table because it is uh, the U.S. I think we've heard that from, from members of the administration uh, in, in those exact uh, words. How much does globalization depend on the U.S.? Well, uh, the U.S. is certainly central to globalization in the sense that if you look at anything other than merchandise trade, where China has become the leading exporter in the world, uh, other types of international interactions, uh, the U.S. Uh, typically leads, usually by large margins. And uh, then, of course, outside the standard economic indicators is uh, has something to do with U.S. military expenditures and military power, which obviously still matters uh, a great deal. But there is something about uh, not just latent structural power, but as Joe Nye pointed out a long time ago, about soft power in terms of how people actually react to one. And uh, one of the concerns is that 
what's being sacrificed right now is a lot of U.S. soft power around the world, as in terms of uh, how, tradi- how reliable traditional allies think of the U.S. as being, how much people even want to emulate some of the kinds of sentiments that seem to have risen to the fore in the U.S. Mm. political process, etc., you know, I look at what's happening with trade and this um, this three-headed beast heading our trade policy. We've got the Wilbur Ross, Robert Lighthizer, and we've got uh, Peter Navarro uh, a- as well. Uh, how much how much potential does that have to change the globalized landscape? Uh, what they're proposing, doing, what we've seen them uh, do here on a on a sort of bilateral basis, the countervailing duties, their approach to trade. How 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 substantial a difference could that make? Well, I mean, I think the approach to trade, as you note, is very different. So there's a clearer sense. Uh, certainly, uh, people have talked about Peter Novaro's uh, philosophical leanings in this regard towards seeing trade as a zero-sum game. And uh, that simply doesn't have uh, any real kind of support anywhere in economics as a way of thinking about the thing. So um, it's definitely radical. Some of the things that they're proposing, uh, I mean, the original discussion of the 45% import tax on China, uh, let's just say that, you know, it's a little bit easier to beat up on Mexico, given that 80% of their merchandise exports are directed to the U.S. Yeah. And there are neighbor to the south. But... uh, uh, China supplied a clear warning that in the event of such attacks, uh, it would go after companies mm. like Apple and Boeing, etc. Uh, they've at least been somewhat more cautious than the kinds of things that uh, Navarro has written in the past about China would have yeah. necessarily led me to expect, and that's probably a good thing. Well, this has been wonderful from Spain. Pankaj uh, Jamalit uh, with New York University Stern School of Business. Really look forward to speaking to him when he wanders back to the island of Manhattan. <laughs> Again, the truth about globalization, it is in Harvard Business Review, and it is a triumph of clear writing and clear charts. And cl- I love globaloney. Yes. That's like survey baloney. Survey baloney. Survey baloney. We do that. We keep that cold here. Often here. We right. do that. Right. Yeah, there's quite a bit of it. And it has pimento and olives in it as well. It's a proprietary recipe. Uh, yeah, it was inflicted in my childhood. Huge response this morning to a number of our guests, one of them, Michael Cannon at the Cato Institute, liberals, progressives, said, how can this guy be on air, etc.? Conservatives say Cato doesn't know what they're talking about. Cato says nobody knows what they're talking about to clear the air further. Michael Cannon of Cato Institute as we await McConnell care. Michael, let me start with a nuance that I think everybody needs clarified. What is the difference between Cato Healthcare? And the criticisms of Senator Paul of Kentucky, how are the conservatives of the GOP different from the libertarians of Cato? Well, Rand Paul is probably closest to Cato. He calls himself a libertarian conservative, and he would repeal Obamacare in full, which is what uh, libertarians want. And he would replace Obamacare with changes that would actually drive down the cost of health care, that would make access to care more secure for the sick, that would let you get a health insurance plan that's portable that Great. doesn't disappear when your job disappears. Why does he have next to no support? 
Well, it turns out that a lot of Republicans who've been saying for seven years that they want to repeal Obamacare didn't mean it. Because as soon as they got the chance, as soon as voters put them in place to do that, they abandoned that cause. And now Senator Mitch McConnell is pushing a bill that would not only not repeal Obamacare, it would expand Obamacare in significant respects. Let me ask you just about what you're expecting to, to see today. I've, I've noted in Bloomberg's coverage of the goings-on on Capitol Hill from our colleague Stephen Dennis, from Sahil Kapoor and others, uh, how often they stop a Republican lawmaker, Republican senator, to ask him or her what's going to be in this bill and how few of them seem to know. I mean, this has been held very close to, to the vest. I wonder what you make of, of that and indeed what you, you think you're going to see today. Well, the reason for that is pretty clear. Uh, the Senate has uh, 52 Republicans. They are sharply divided over Obamacare. You've got some moderates or even left-leaning Republicans who want to keep Obamacare or even expand it. And you've got some Republicans who definitely want to repeal it. And they've got a very narrow margin. They can only afford to lose two votes because of this uh, arcane procedure they're using to pass something with just a bare majority in the Senate. Uh, And even then they'll need the vice president to break a tie. And so when you've got a divided caucus and a narrow margin, they don't want to leave it to chance by putting it through the committee process and having it get uh, uh, pulled too far either to the left or to the right. So Mitch McConnell is really trying to control this this process. And that's why they're doing everything they accused the Democrats of doing back in 2009, which is drafting the bill behind closed doors, not sharing what they're doing with the American people, letting lobbyists know about what's in the bill before they let anyone else know. So uh, I think that's the reason. What does that portend to you, to you, Michael? I mean, I, I listen to what you're saying there about the, the worry that the caucus is so fractured they wouldn't be able to hammer it out if, if everybody was, was involved. But this seems like a pretty short-term measure. In other words, they're going to come out of this committee, uh, this small committee, with a piece of legislation. How do they then get everybody to rally around it? Well, uh, with a lot of uh, uh, threats and cajoling, really. I mean, <laughs> pleading. The, the, Maybe some the, pleading The president well. is going to plead with them that uh, – we need to win. And if you want me to support anything uh, on your agenda, you're going to have to vote for this bill. Mitch McConnell will do the same. They'll threaten to primary uh, folks who don't vote for the bill. Uh, but uh, look, you, you know, the problem with writing a bill like this behind closed doors, we saw on the House side, you have a bunch of really non-experts or at least some, maybe some experts, oh. who, but who still have limited knowledge, who are putting together <clears throat> a bill when they don't even understand right. all the consequences. That's why you have committee hearings the, and, and, and write these things in an open process so you can find out what's going to work and what isn't. The emotion I see in conversation and the emails and letters I get from listeners comes down to how much a given person pays in a deductible where they used to pay 20 bucks or 200 bucks, whatever, and now they're paying $800 or $1,500. That seems to be a third rail for a lot of people. What does Cato care or Rand Paul care or Obama light care do to this hugely emotional issue of cash out if I get sick? Well, what really motivates people is the quality of coverage that they're going to receive. I mean, that, that, that turns Democrats against Obamacare's pre-existing conditions provisions when they learn about the impact that those provisions have on I'll quality. I'll go with that, important. but what about but, the money out the door right, that but the, so many people write into me about? The problem with Obamacare and the Republican Obamacare light plan and something that Rand Paul gets right is uh, those Obamacare and Obamacare light, they don't reduce the cost of care. They just throw more government money at unaffordable care. 
Rand Paul's proposal and proposals that I've put forward uh, and, and, and some others would actually reduce the cost of care so that uh, fewer people would even need to hit those deductibles because the care they need is going to cost so much less than their deductibles. And their health insurance premiums would be lower so they'd be able to afford lower deductibles if that's what they, if, what they want. But Mitch McConnell is not reducing the cost of care. Mitch McConnell is just throwing more government money at unaffordable care. Uh, going back to what might or might not be in this bill, we saw the House pass its own piece of legislation. The Senate refused to pick up that piece of legislation, work off of it. From the reporting that I'm reading this morning, again, from our, our colleagues, it sounds like this bill is going to look uh, not totally like that bill coming out of the House, but similar uh, to it. Uh, are, are you optimistic that, that there is going to be some uh, agreement between these two houses of Congress? That there is a path forward for them to, to hammer out some of their disagreements and come, come out with something that both houses could support? I think if they hammered out a compromise between these two bills, I'd be very pessimistic um, uh, about the future of health care. So I'd, I, because I think that either the House bill or what we've heard of the Senate bill so far would not be a step in the right direction and it would be worse than doing nothing. So I, 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 do I think they could work out a compromise? Perhaps. Uh, but I think that the future of health care uh, would be more secure if – if uh, if uh, these oh. efforts failed, people got to feel the costs of Obamacare for a little longer, and that focused people's attention on the real problem mm. that, that the Republicans hardly no. touched, much less repealed, <clears throat> which is the community rating price controls that are driving up premiums and driving down okay. the quality of coverage. I, w- I want to come back and continue this discussion. Michael Cannon, we get a huge response for pro and con when Mr. Cannon joins us. We greatly appreciate his attendance on this important day for all of our health care coverage uh, with the Senate bill. Uh, David, what's it, it's like sort of, sort of like this morning? Yeah, sort of, it's, it's amorphous. Of course, like, we heard from yeah. Senator McConnell that it's going to come out today. I don't think we've gotten much more uh, clarity on the record yeah. from, from him about that. We heard from John Cornyn, another senator, yesterday saying it could be Friday. I understand that's yeah. kind of an outlier call, but I think uh, the expectation broadly yeah. is we'll get a draft of this thing today to look at. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.